The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Breathless with anticipation is what we are on The Money Show this evening. It's been a really, really tough day and lots going wrong in our world. The cumulative effect of lost opportunity and a failure to invest in the future. Um, that is what is coming together in this dreadful cocktail of job losses in multiple parts of our economy. That dreadful accident happening at Impala Platinum's Rustenburg Mine. 11 shafts, 75 injured, 11 dead. Uh, the Bidvest story is concerning as well. When Bidvest struggles, you know that uh, t- the, there is strife in the economy. We'll talk about Mittal in just a moment as well. And there are lots of other tales to tell tonight on The Money Show. Uh, the Money Show is brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa at the Euromoney Cash Management Survey of 2020. 23. Welcome to The Money Show. It's been a tough day uh, across our economy. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. There's an absolute truth in the statement that people will see what they believe rather than believe what they see. And the level of the manipulation of the currency trading story, not the currency trading manipulation, but the manipulation of the currency trading story is extraordinary. And I believe the narrative is being propagated as a tool of distraction about the many obvious failings of the state that are increasingly apparent, even though National Treasury today has said the collusion by staff at 28 local and foreign banks to manipulate the Rand dollar exchange rate had no impact on the Rand depreciation since 2013. You see this concerted and persistent effort to make people believe that the banks are deliberately looking to undermine the country. It is pathetic. It truly, truly is pathetic. When Bidvest takes strain, as I said earlier, you know the times are tough. The group warning today that it is not ex- was not expecting as big a slowdown as has materialized, a larger than expected drop in business volumes, as well as its margins getting hurt. Well, big factors include a contracting consumer spending cycle, a decline in volumes in some sectors. Good news for you and me is that there is increased cost competitiveness, which implies that we may be near the peak of the inflation cycle. While it's tough, it's not a mess everywhere. Travel and hospitality as well as commercial demand for basic products and services are pockets of growth. But Bidvest has confirmed today it's looking at its costs and it's um, it, it really is concerned. Then there was the warning, the my, once mighty ISCOR today, ArcelorMittal, which is warning 3,500 jobs are at risk after it decided to mothball its what they call the long steel business in Newcastle and Friena that makes products like wire and also other products, of course, like railway tracks, which are not in enormous demand in South Africa at the moment. Let's welcome to The Money Show this evening, Donald Mackay, who is director at XA International Trade Advisors on the line to us from Johannesburg. Um, It feels like the great unravelling taking place, isn't it? Indeed. Um, Certainly not good news. Certainly not good news, but what I mean, it's the culmination of years of economic neglect and mismanagement that all seem to be coming to fruition at roughly the same time, Donald. And I'm wondering how you're seeing it from an advisory perspective. Yeah, so that's hard to argue with. But I think some of this has, has been created by, by lots of government policies which are all pulling in opposite directions. And I think in this particular case, also, Lamittal found themselves on, on the wrong side of government policies 
protect the mini moles that are consuming the scrap metal. And um, the, the forced depreciation of the price of scrap has made it difficult for ArcelorMittal to compete in these products which are head-to-head with the likes of Gourmet. Now, we've not got a great phone line to you the, this evening, Donald, but I'm just wondering, it's the latest in a long list of, of companies that are warning that the environment is not viable to keep producing. You've got VW and Eastern Cape Stallwater of many years and, and many others that are just saying, hold on a second, this far and no further, things deteriorate, we start taking away um, investment, we start slowing things down, cutting things back, and you will begin to feel the pain of divestment in your economy. Yeah, so I I think there's just going to be more of this to come. Nobody wants to have a factory without electricity, without water. And as our infrastructure fails after many years of neglect, the expected outcome is that some people would say, we don't want to be here anymore. Now, I mean, again, one hopes that we're at the worst point in the cycle, or perhaps the worst point in the cycle is coming. One looks at the, the degradation of infrastructure, and one looks at what it takes and costs to rebuild. We're not quite in a war situation, but certainly the impact of neglect is akin to the replacement value is warlike, I would, I, I would think. Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, in some parts of the country, it really does look as if we've been at war. So absolutely, to to maintain the infrastructure, of course, would have been much cheaper. But to to kind of get to replacing our our harbours and electricity supply and missing sewerage infrastructure and so on now becomes um, just a, a monumental task. How does one do that in a country where debt to GDP is hitting 70-odd percent, where debt levels have never been so high, where we get to 6 trillion rands worth of debt by 2025? How on earth do we begin this process of rebuilding a broken economy at a point when we're ready to do so? It seems inconceivable that government can fix the problem that's been created. Um, some of the infrastructure and some of the stuff has to be done by government. But I would argue we're at a point where there really isn't a choice any longer. But to say to, to the private sector, if you still have some capital, would you please come and spend it here? Uh, government's history of spending capital on infrastructure has really generated a negative return, which is, of course, why we find ourselves in the position. So I think there's privatisation, whether we like it or not at the moment. Uh, thank you very much to Donald Mackay, who is directed XA International Trade Advisors. So when Donald says something like that, there will be a group of people, and you may be one of those people saying, ah, oh, you see, they're doing it deliberately. They're doing it to undermine the state. They are doing it because they want to take control. No, they're not. No, they're not. That would be suicidal and stupid um, to even consider that for a moment because the amount of damage that has been done in the meantime never gets recouped. Kubis Verstaar is the ArcelorMittal uh, South Africa chief executive. He's in Funderbell Park, which is one of the plants which is going to be affected by these, uh, by this consolidation, by these cutbacks. And simply put, Kubis, it's just no longer a competitive advantage to be running what you guys call the longs, uh, which is wire and train tracks, things like that. That's correct. Uh, good evening, uh, Bruce. Yeah, I think the fundamental problem is the starting with uh, economic growth and uh, the lack of that obviously permutates into a negative steel demand, 20% reduction over seven years. So you get to a point where the 
capacity outstrip demand almost three times in that sector of the market. So it becomes very difficult to operate. You've been warning for a long time that this is coming. Has anybody bothered to listen, bothered to come and have a look around and bothered to sort of interact with you? I mean, we've been in discussions on this for almost probably four years. And I mean, if you look at the the issues we've raised in our sense announcement, either being ESCOM, Transnet, economic growth, scrap advantage, overcapacity, those are things uh, it seems unlikely that there's a a resolution in the short term and hence our decision to close these operations because the negative cash flow drain can only be sustained for so long. And so, I mean, is this an instruction from sort of ArcelorMittal head office in India going, you know what, please just cease and desist. We cannot afford to pour any more money into that economy. Wait until things turn around, if indeed they do. No, absolutely not. I mean, actually, uh, I have recommended this now for some time, up to a point where we came where we see this is inevitable. Uh, for Mittal Group to shut down plants is a very difficult decision. So this is a local recommendation, obviously uh, uh, finally decided by our board. But you know how big companies work. We socialize and we we consult our experts in the group and they fully agree uh, that the external and structural impediments are just too difficult to overcome. So you say you put these plants on care and maintenance. How long is it viable to keep sweeping out the dust and dusting off the shelves and things? I don't know what care and maintenance mm-hmm. takes. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. But you've got to keep furnaces, I suppose, turning and you've got to keep things going for a period of time. What's your time frame on that, maximum time frame? No, I think short term, I think we we obviously have to do this quite quickly to get that to that stage. So first priority is to shut it down safely. It's a, it's a dangerous operation and uh, we want to do it safely and then put it in a stage that at a later point, if required and if able, it can start again. And then one has to start uh, using the, the peripheral assets there to cover the maintenance cost over time. As we're doing in Saldana, we get into a point where it was not a negative drain on the business and then you can actually do it for quite a number of years. What is uh, ArcelorMittal in South Africa still producing then? I mean, how big is the operation? I'm trying to find a way of getting it explained that we can understand mm. because this is the once mighty, vast, sprawling enterprise that uh, was started by Mr. Van der Beel mm. nearly 100 years ago. Um, and it, it seems to be a fraction of its, of its former self. Yeah, I think if you look at volumes, we at the moment just over 3 million, but probably we can do uh, 4 million if you add Saldana, 5 million. But for the year, we'll do about 3 million. So we'll take out uh, 900,000 tons of the long business. So we'll have a flat business that's just over 2.1 that can supply up to 2.8, 3 million tons. It's still a so, but, billion uh, turnover business. Yeah, but you're cutting a third of. You, sorry, you're cutting a third of your yeah. production. Therefore, yes. I mean, it depends on what your focus is. If the yeah. ultimate positive cash flow and business is your focus, then we're actually doing the right thing.
No, completely. Um, and one understands it. But again, you're cutting a third of your production. You're down to um, a, a, a really small size relative to what it used to be. The flats is what? Flat steel products that you go into industry and then people can cut out their shapes and make different things out of it, I suppose, rather than the what you call the longs, which is the long pieces of steel that are used in manufacturing and other, in other um, industries. No, you know, you actually the flat steel is actually more the value add. So that's the okay. servicing the automotive, the renewables, okay. roofing, appliances, and those type of uh, products. So you must be looking at VW South Africa, which is saying, "Hold on a second, we can't keep doing this in perpetuity." Uh, you must be nervous about that because that ultimately would affect would affect even your flat steel business. Should they at any point decide that they've had enough as well? No, I, I would think uh, uh, that's a danger for, I think, most manufacturing environments. I mean, we've, we've manufacturing contribution to GDP dropped from 25% to around 12%. But at least uh, you have the ability to apply more capital to value-add product development and more sustainable uh, than if you have a negative trend in your business. Thank you, Kubis Verstaar, who is the ArcelorMittal South Africa Chief Executive on the line to us on The Money Show this evening. Yeah, tragic news. It really is. Three and a half thousand jobs likely to go in front of Bell Park and Newcastle. These are industrial jobs as they can nearly a third of their steel production. It makes the business more sustainable, of course. That's a piece of good news. But ultimately, it affects real lives, real jobs, real contribution to an economy that is struggling. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, unrivaled pursuit of great service that guides good business for clients. APSA is a registered FSP. You see, Volvo South Africa announcing a special armoured version of its already substantial XC90 flagship SUV. They are bringing that into the local vehicle offering. It's starting price at two and a half million rand. Apparently, it's a terribly discreet ballistic protection, which you can order directly from the manufacturer in Sweden. And this armoured XC90 is going to, there are a whole bunch of specifications, but essentially it protects people against handgun fire. And uh, the company says all armoring materials from the reinforced laminated glass to the high strength steel plating, the special composites that are used are discreetly integrated into the SUV's existing design to protect the vehicle's occupants without ever being seen. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to spend that amount of money on a bulletproof car, and I have reason to believe I may need a bulletproof car, I'm going to want the bad guys to realize that I have a bulletproof car so they don't shoot at it in the first place. You see the damage that bullets do to things like bulletproof vests and to um, armored glass and all of that sort of stuff. It causes havoc. The repairs are going to be outrageous. I wouldn't want it to be discreet. Not for a moment. I want them to see that there's no chance in getting through to me. The Money Show. The Markets. To Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. And just bad news upon bad news story upon bad news story in terms of our economy and the strain that is being felt across multiple sectors. Wayne, good evening. Yeah, Bruce, I think you're 100% right in saying that. I mean, that's the whole environment of a commodity down cycle, high interest rates, high inflation, terrible ESKIM, terrible transnet logistics. Yeah. 
It's terrible. I mean, when Bidvest tells you that their profits are under pressure, that their margins are under pressure, that their businesses are going to have to be reconfigured, that they're you know, looking at their cost base, that tells you Bidvest is about to join the, uh, the the job cutting cycle, I would assume. I mean, I read between the lines on this. They're not being that blunt. But when Bidvest tells you they're in trouble, you know the economy's in trouble because they reach parts of this economy that no other company reaches. Yeah. When you look at their results, it's quite interesting. The Let's call it the services leisure side of the business. It's actually doing quite well. And that's consistent with all the companies involved in that sector, Zida, Yesterday, etc., saying that part of the country's economy is doing quite well. But anything else, I mean, what do you expect with high interest rates and where we are, as we spoke about earlier on? But all of this is, by and large, cyclical. We hope that... Eskom can get sorted out over the next two or three years and Transnet over the next two or three years because interest rates will go down and the commodity cycle will turn up. So things should look better in two years' time, one year's time than where they are now. So maybe we're looking at everything through the lens of the bottom of the cycle and hopefully things don't get any worse and they can improve as the cycle turns. However, the deterioration of the infrastructure of the economy, the stuff that gets things to ports and out of ports and to, uh, to shops and out of factories and onto ships and onto customers worldwide, that infrastructure is failing so badly that companies like Volkswagen, companies like Arcel or Mittal are just saying, look, this far and no further, yeah. thank you very much. We just can't keep throwing good money after bad. But as we both know from bitter experience here in South Africa and Overseas, it's no different. Politicians only react and take the tough decisions when there is no other easy way out, when they have to take the tough, tough decisions. So we're seeing Transnet effectively being privatized. I mean, the, the big bulk railway lines and that will all, all effectively be run by the companies using them quite soon because they've got the capital to be able to invest to actually fix it. And the ports will eventually get, get fixed because... There is no other alternative. You can't you can't run away from the the actual state that they are in at the moment and the private sector will be involved and is getting involved in sorting all of this out. So unfortunately with politicians, they will run away from a tough decision for as long as they possibly can. But when there is no other way out, surprisingly enough the decisions are actually made. You know, exactly. Unfortunately, we have to be pushed to the brink too before we start making sensible calls. And it's such a waste of energy, time, jobs and livelihoods. It really is. The tragedy at Impala um, at its number 11 shaft in Rustenburg. This is an unusual tragedy in modern times. I mean, the one thing that this government has got absolutely right is the very, very strong oversight of a mining industry that was not particularly careful with the lives of mine workers pre-1994. And mining incidents of this scale, I mean, 11 people dead, 75 injured, are mercifully unusual, but tragically for the people involved in this one, it's awful. That is terrible. I mean, I can remember in the mid-1990s, there were about 500 or 600 people killed annually in our mining And that certainly has improved dramatically. And of course, if anyone is responsible and must take uh, uh, um, whatever the investigation comes out and the implications of that, you know, people must be held responsible if so. Um, But it is a tragedy and they've closed the mine for a certain time period. 
But, you know, the ore body still sits there and it can still be used and extracted. So it's not a permanent diminution in the value of the share. No, it's not. But it is a sector that is under huge enough you know, enough pressure as things stand anyway, from cost pressures yes. to the price they can achieve. Um, this morbidly plays into the hand of rivals because we are one of the biggest producers of platinum group metals in the world. So Sibanya, which is struggling, and Anglo-American platinum, which yes. is struggling at current price levels, <laughs> we will at least be able to get more of their supply into the market. But it's not going to help yes. anybody who works at Impala, unfortunately. No, but look, I mean, this is this is a cyclical. Let's, let's put the accident aside. This is all cyclical. Three years yeah. ago, they had oh, and massive dividends, huge profits, huge bonuses to the management, as we all know, and share prices going through the roof. And now at the bottom of the cycle, no one's making money. They're retrenching people. They've got to raise capital. All the bad news comes up. But the, these are all cyclical, and the cycle can, in fact, change and may in fact be changing already. Unfortunately, we don't produce nearly as much gold as we used to. The no. price of gold at $2,025 an ounce this evening. It's an astonishingly high level for the gold price. It's usually a sign of uh, terrible things going on in the global economy. I wonder what we should be reading into what's happening to gold. Look, Bruce, it's always difficult to determine what's driving the gold price. I mean, you know, it's possibly of lower interest rates, weaker dollar pushing the gold price up. But yes, gold industry, I can remember when I started in the stock market, I think there were 40 listed gold companies. And when Shapiro started in the stock market, <laughs> I think it was 45% of the market capitalization yeah. was gold. Yeah. No, absolutely. The Shapiro he refers to is David Shapiro, of course, who's been in the stock market for a long time. Forever. Uh, Forever. Absolutely. I mean, I just, and, I love. And there is only one Shapiro. Of course, there no, there is now. Yes, um, <laughs> there was there was a stat I, I like to use and quote, and that is on the day Nelson Mandela was released from prison, twenty four out of the top forty shares in the JSE were gold companies, and you know then the consolidation happened, and you know we had the the creation of goldfields and and Harmony and Anglo Gold Ashanti yeah. and all of yeah. these things. I mean, it was it was a it was a wild and interesting place. We've got a far more diversified economy today, but my goodness me, it's taking a huge amount of strain. Wayne McCurry, thank you. Wayne is uh, from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank, joins us on a Tuesday night on a regular basis. Uh, the All Share Index did end in positive territory despite the bad news in and uh, in, in our country, but yeah, the market up 219 points, back to 75,000, nearly 600. Um, gold shares did well today. The platinum stocks of Anglo-American Platinum and Sibania did well Impala was down 9% after the accident, 76 rand 60. ArcelorMittal lost 14%, um, bringing its losses for the year so far by down three quarters of its value, down 75%. And Bidvest, unusually bad trading update coming out of Bidvest, share price down 10% to 244 rand. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show, 6 to 8 p.m. I know it's factual, but Dola Kelly is off the Christmas card list. She's off. She's not getting a Christmas card. I'm not even going to try and post it. Even if I was going to post Christmas cards, she would not be on the list because she called that travesty, formerly known as Twitter by its proper name, <laughs> she called it X. I can't. I can't. Not yet. It's too soon.
Uh, welcome to The Money Show. Dr. Eric Levenstein is standing by. He is the head of insolvency and business rescue practice at Worksman's Attorneys. With so much bad news about, it's important to understand just the real-world impact of what is going on in our economy, and it's not pretty. Uh, we are going to help you this evening on how to spot an investment scam. Uh, that's happening on our investment school at half past seven. Today is a bleaker day than normal in terms of the news flow. I can only apologize for that, but uh, when it comes comes in thick and fast the way it has come in today we do need to reflect it far more uplifting on the next money show because on the next money show our shapeshifter is a dragon from the uk dragon's den stephen bartlett the british serial entrepreneur turned poor podcaster is joining us he's the founder of third web flight story and the flight story fund amongst other things he's prolific and lovely and warm and kind and generous oh so much to hate, but what a guy. He joined me last week. We will bring you that discussion on the next Money Show. Can't wait. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. More than a 1,000 businesses so far this year believed to have shut their doors. Let's talk to Dr. Eric Levenstein, the head of insolvency and business rescue at Worksman's Attorneys. Do we have absolutely up-to-date data on this number of businesses that are closing? Eric, good evening. Good evening, Bruce. Yes, I do believe that Stats South Africa's liquidation statistics are pretty accurate. Um, when you look at 136 businesses having closed their doors in October and 1,100 businesses being reported having closed this year, it is concerning. Um, I don't think it's the, our statistics that can be ignored at all. 1,000. 376 businesses have been liquidated since the start of the year. The year is not yet over. It implies more to come, of course. Is this uh, a, a ballpark figure that is similar to previous years or is it markedly different? Bruce, I think that it is um, on the upside or on the high side, rather, and that's really because of the increasing constraints of just doing business in South Africa. I mean, cash flow issues, the knock-on effects of diesel fuel generators, just keeping the doors open for companies, whether it's SMEs or larger companies, I think has had its, um, had its toll, certainly in 2023. And I do think the real issue is the warning signals of stress are probably being ignored by management and by directors of companies. And by the time they turn around, uh, they are facing liquidation and there are no other options or alternatives. Uh, Business Rescue, how is that operating in this very uncertain environment? We've always spoken over many years since Business Rescue was introduced that many business owners hold on to the bitter end and then it's too late to rescue the business by the time they go looking for help. I'm wondering whether or not the the Business Rescue process is being more effective in this environment? There's, there's There's a couple of schools of thought. Firstly, there's the informal restructuring piece, which a lot of our banks are support where you'd bring in a restructuring expert to get involved quite early on in a process of distress, try and turn the company around, deal with a compromise of debt. Or if the company is too far gone down its financial distress curve, then you are looking at a business risk. And remember, even all we could do with companies that were distressed was wind them up, put them into liquidation. And then the 2008 Companies Act did bring business rescue onto our stack books. 11 years down the line, there are lots of companies that if they get in earlier enough, can be turned around. There are lots of really good examples, Bruce, as you know. Edcon, Kumalela, Zimbali, Sturtinikor, and even SA, they're still flying. Those were all companies 
that got into the business rescue process early enough to enable them to exit successfully. Yeah, um, there are a handful of examples. Unfortunately, the vast majority don't make it through the process because they just are too far gone by the time the process is there. And there are not too many signals, I don't think, anywhere in this economy, Eric, of a turnaround anytime soon. We really do need to get to a point where the Reserve Bank can feel confident enough to start cutting interest rates because, to my mind, that's about the only thing that is going to act as a catalyst for relief. Absolutely. And, you know, the less pressure brought to bear on companies and the ability to lend money, obviously pay their their debts back, financial covenants, all of those things would make life a lot easier for corporates in South Africa. But Bruce, I do think that it's back to an educational issue. And that is, as we spoke a bit earlier about business rescue, more directors understood the process, understood what the option was all about, and got in early enough to do an operational restructuring, never mind the financial restructuring, get in someone doesn't have to be in a formal business rescue process, see what's wrong with the business, maybe replace management, maybe even replace your CEO and your CFO and see if you can avert a liquidation because these numbers are really very, very high and very concerning for, for the South African economy going into 2024. Because the multiplier effect, I mean, they, we, we go, oh, well, thirteen or 1,400 co- companies closed down. Oh, that's very sad. But when you consider that the number of people who work in these companies probably go from two-person you know, two operations to 100-person operations, there, these are many thousands of people who, are, who will be out of work and many of whom won't be able to find any replacement employment anytime soon. Absolutely. And liquidators have unfortunately have no alternative but to terminate employment contracts. The company's life comes to an end. And the one knock-on effect people don't realize, a lot of suppliers rely on that particular customer or company that's now gone into liquidation. They now have to look for other customers and uh, companies that they can supply their goods to, and they themselves might end up in a a situation of financial difficulty. So it does have a knock-on effect. Um, And I do think that big corporates need to look at their suppliers and say to themselves, are they trading profitably? Can they assist? I mean, are the directors aware of what the options are? And I think if that happens, you'll find less of these kind of numbers coming through our, through our system. Uh, absolutely. And there's also the importance, I suppose, of in your own business, making sure that your admin is up to speed, making sure that you are collecting the debts that are owed to you and you're doing it actively, politely, but aggressively, and making sure that everybody is paying you within the agreed time frames, that you're not rolling over debts because the, you have no idea about the financial position of any of your suppliers, any of the companies you're supplying. You want your bills paid as quickly as possible. Absolutely. And, you know, when creditors uh, want their debts paid and uh, you go over 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and you're not collecting that position, it's going to have a knock-on effect for the company's cash flow. And once that happens, it has its own uh, self, uh, self um, uh, prophecy in respect of it's going to end up in a, a, a worse position for the company because your cash flow is off. Uh, sometimes your debt book might even be uh, ceded to the bank. The bank might call up its session on debtors, and that's just the start of your troubles because it's going to probably end up in a liquidation if that happens. 
Thank you, Dr. Eric Levenstein, the head of insolvency and business rescue practice at Worksman's Attorneys. I mentioned this the other day, but I'm seeing more and more of it. And it's a story this evening in the Financial Times. Um, and it's about Nikki Haley, who is emerging as the most likely contender to Donald Trump for the uh, candidacy to stand to become the re- Republican presidential candidate against whoever the Democrats finally decide to put forward. It certainly looks at this stage that Joe Biden is the most likely candidate. If the Republicans put Nikki Haley in, it's going to, I'm sure she'll be in for a, a slam dunk. She's young, she's brilliant, she is a, certainly a fresh face in the really dowdy world of American politics. And now I see that a billionaire by the name of Charles Koch has endorsed Nikki Haley as a presidential candidate, and of course he'll be funding her. Uh, the support of Americans for Prosperity Action it's a very, very well-funded group. It's got nearly $75 million on hand at the end of June, and they're looking to put that money behind Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the United Nations, looks like certainly a firm favorite amongst very wealthy Americans who would like to see Donald Trump not be their candidate at the next U.S. elections. Of course, there's a lot of water still to run under that bridge, But my goodness gracious me, it's certainly um, shaping up to be an interesting Republican fight for the nomination to stand against the Democratic Party at the new U.S. elections, next U.S. elections. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2020. 23. Chris Yelland with us this evening. Uh, finally, we'll be getting to get a little bit of uh, equipment that we need to help end load shedding. China has promised a while back to uh, provide South Africa with 500 million rands worth of load shedding support. And the first consignment of that equipment, which has been donated by the People's Republic of China, is expected to be received by the Minister for Electricity, Jose Enzo Ramachopa. It's expected to be happening in Peter Maritzburg on Thursday, which is good news, I think. Is it good news? Chris Yelland, the energy analyst and MD at EE Business Intelligence. Is this the sort of news that we need to give us a little bit of hope to see light, not even at the end of the tunnel, just just light, Chris Yelland? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, obviously, uh, these kind of emergency uh, generation facilities are just that. They, they're not intended for continuous use. Uh, they they are really a stopgap measure, um, and and it's not a good sign actually. It's a sign that we're heading the direction of Nigeria's um, electricity supply industry, which uh, is really dominated by every single business having to sort out their own generation facility, and. Um, Diesel generators, petrol generators, they're noisy, they're polluting, they are very expensive. Um, and I think a better solution is solar PV and battery energy storage to relieve uh, Eskom of its burden. That will not only provide um, you know, electricity for the individual sites where they're used, uh, but will actually alleviate load shedding across the whole country. And that's why we've seen a massive uptake of uh, solar PV and a battery in, in residential uh, commercial, agricultural, and uh, light industry uh, applications. And it is making a big difference. I think a lot more could be done with this. 
uh, and and it, it has benefits that uh, that these diesel generators and petrol generators don't have. I mean, did we ask specifically for certain bits of equipment, or did the Chinese do an assessment and say this is what you need, and you get to be getting four hundred and fifty fuel, uh, sort of fossil fuel-driven generators? That's what you're getting, and they can go into public service facilities around the country. It is a short-term measure, but you know, it's you in a crisis, and it's you know you can't uh, drag a car power ship up the Vaal River, so you better start getting something else. I think this is more of a political signal. Um, really? <laughs> you know, that China is interested in cooperating with South Africa. Yeah. They have business interests here. Uh, they want to expand their business interests. They want to show that they're being helpful and cooperative and that they are a reliable partner. Uh, but I'm sure their objectives go beyond simply a donation of, the, uh, of petrol and diesel generators. Yeah, and uh, look, I mean, is this the first phase of a multi-phase approach? Is this a once-off donation? I don't mean to be a beggar about this, but any help <laughs> is helpful. I think this is a precursor to the real business. Uh, China has immense resources uh, in its uh, human resources, as well as a whole um, a supply chain of equipment uh, such as transformers and switchgear and cables and lines and insulators and all the kind of stuff that we need in the transmission grid. Uh, of course, it also has generation facilities, but I kind of see that if you look at the politics of South Africa and the ANC, ideologically, there is a, uh, I think it, uh, the ANC is ideologically uh, more aligned to China than it is to the United States and sure. to Europe, and 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 even to Russia. Uh, I mean, Russia. Uh, there are historical uh, links uh, from the ruling party to Russia, but the reality is that the real uh, ideological and business links are, are with China. In fact, China is our biggest trade partner, bigger than uh, the European Union, uh, bigger than the United States, and and much, much, much bigger than Russia. And likely to become bigger because, I mean, they're not giving this stuff away for nothing. This isn't, I mean, it's wonderful that they that it is a donation, but this is a donation, uh, if not with strings attached, certainly with, you know, there, there will be an expectation of a quid pro quo at some point. Yeah, I don't think there are strings attached, uh, but I think there are expectations attached. Yeah. Uh, and it's done with these expectations to, uh, you kind of say, oil the wheels of, of future business uh, and, and to, to demonstrate a, a willingness to be part of the solution. Uh, but I do think that if you look to the immense tasks ahead, for example, in the transmission grid, uh, I, I think um, China, uh, you, you know, we look at our transmission grid upgrade as a massive investment and a massive task. For China, they do these things on a scale that makes ours look like the crumbs under the table. Uh, and, and I think there, there are business interests uh, that China can help us with. Uh, and uh, you must know, uh, South Africa is not the only country that's upgrading its grid. The whole world is doing it because as they move from central generation to distributed generation, you need much more access to the grid. You need to upgrade the grid. And all the countries of the world are doing this. 
Uh, and we're not high on the priority list. Uh, and certainly we're not a preferred uh, customer by the OEMs of, of the developed world. Uh, but I think, uh, I, I think China can play an important role here. Thank you to Chris Yelland. Chris is an energy analyst. He's the managing director of EE Business Intelligence. On the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. After Eyewitness News, our signals feature. There's so many signals and we're seeing signals all over the place and many of them are flashing red. Uh, we're going to chat to Dion Host, the chief investment officer at Credo in London. What we should be reading into the multiplicity of delistings from the JSE, but it's not just the JSE. There are delistings happening on stock markets practically everywhere. Diana Games uh, with our Africa Business Report and Gary Boyson is Investment School Headmaster this evening, protecting yourself from voracious investment scams. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euromoney Cash Management Survey 2023. Would you feel more or less comfortable if you got onto a plane and you, the pilot said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, you're on a first flight this evening. We're crossing the Atlantic on this uh, aircraft, which is fueled a Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which is fueled with used cooking oil. You go, what? Hold on a second. I, you know, I paid good money for this ticket. But that's precisely what's happened. Virgin Atlantic, which operates out of Heathrow to New York's JFK, um, has just taken off in a Boeing 787 Dreamliner. The uh, Virgin founder, Richard Branson, and the UK Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, the Virgin Atlantic Chief Executive, a guy called Shai Weiss, among the first passengers on the flight. There are no fare-carrying passengers on this flight, so hopefully it makes it, because it would be a bit of a disaster if it didn't. But yeah, this uh, using a greener fuel made from cooking oil has taken off from Heathrow Airport in the United Kingdom, uh, making its way to JFK. Certainly the future is greener than the past, which is a little piece of, I suppose, positivity. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to Dion Host, the Chief Investment Officer at Credo in London on our signals feature this evening. And the signals we should be reading into the future of your investments because you give money to insurance companies, to pension funds. You may invest directly into shares yourself or buy your own exchange-traded funds or unit trusts. However you choose to do it, you're investing in a market that is diminishing, not only here in South Africa, but in many parts of the world where companies are looking at the huge regulation and the constraint that is put upon them when they list and the huge reporting responsibilities. And they're going, you know what, it's actually easier to do this in private equity or it's easier to do this privately. It's easier not to do it at all. I wonder, Dion Gos, whether you're seeing the signal as somewhat distressing for the future of investment markets generally. Thank you, Bruce. I wouldn't say it's distressing. I think the nature of markets is that there will always be opportunities. I think people may need to adjust in terms of where they look for these opportunities and what the expectations are. Um, but distressing, no. You know, Ultimately, uh, I firmly believe in free markets um, and in the power of the positive powers of capitalism. 
Um, and the way to participate in that is by buying equities, which is my own sort of preference when it comes to the world of investing. Um, and I think there'll always be opportunities, whether that is in private markets, as you suggest, or in the public markets that we've um, had for the past few decades. Clearly, there are developments in this regard, but I think the opportunities will always be there. Okay, so what is happening in investment markets at the moment in terms of the the big delistings drive and the shortage of new companies coming to the market? Because there was always just this wonderful supply of weird and wonderful ideas that you could rely on coming to stock markets. Some would succeed, some would fail, but there was always a supply of them and that seems to have dried up largely. Yeah, I think it's a function, you know, in your introduction, you you mentioned this sort of cost of regulation. I think that's one of the things. When when I joined the markets uh, in the in the mid-90s, it certainly felt a lot easier. In those days, South Africa had more than a thousand listed shares. It was a full page of very fine print, like six font print in the business day, um, a full page of stock prices. Today, I think there's about a third of that left. Um, and, and one of the reasons, frankly, is the cost of compliance, the cost of regulation, the pressures of all the scrutiny that would be on company management, and they don't really enjoy that for the longer term. And that's clearly part of it. And another in the South African context, I guess, would be a function of South Africa specific factors. You know, we've had our headwinds in South Africa. We don't need to go into that. Structural challenges, whether it's ESCOM or otherwise. Uh, but also, you know, all forms of legislation, which I think hamper uh, some companies. I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes in finance, which is a very famous one by Walter Riston. He was the chair of Citicorp in the 80s. And I'm sure you know this one, Bruce, but he said that capital goes where it is welcome and it stays where it is well treated. So if you have a company that's listed on the stock exchange and you don't feel well treated, well, maybe you look to exit. Yeah, and it's not even just about being well-treated. It's just about not being abused. I mean, we are, you know, we've got growing voices of dissent and discontent in the South African economy. And, we, you know, you, we do go through phases of these announcements, but we see it seemed to have had a disproportionate number this week of just companies going, guys, this is your final warning. We really are struggling to keep our paymasters in our foreign jurisdictions happy. They're wondering why we're only operating 12 hours a day or whatever, um, because you know, we tell them about load shedding, and nobody knows what load shedding is. Nobody can believe there's still this thing called load shedding 15 years into a power crisis. Are you or are you not capable of sorting out your, I was going to use a word, trouble? Um, and it's just that loss of faith in the future, which is, I think, the thing that concerns me most and the strongest signal that we're getting from people who want to stay, want to keep manufacturing here. But as you say, we're not making them feel as if we care enough about them. Yeah, that's certainly a very valid argument. You know, I think there's there's other perspectives as well. I think if you compare um, just the pool of available capital today to where it may have been, you know, a decade or two ago, I think the world has changed. Uh, and, and partly... It's been a function of central bank action over the last 10 years plus since the financial crisis. We all know that we've seen money printing on a large scale and that we've seen zero or near zero interest rates in in the developed world. And what that has meant is that you've got these huge pools of capital available that are looking for investment. And a lot of them is private. It's in the hands of people that don't bother with the stock market. If you look at the world's biggest venture capital funds like Andreessen Horowitz and and Sequoia Capital, you know, run by one of our own, uh, one Mr. Rolof Boerta. Um, these are multi-billion dollar enterprises today and they can afford 
to invest in so-called angels all the way to where they're unicorns. They don't bring them to the market until they're billion-dollar companies. Um, so in many cases, they just bypass the stock market uh, and they grow to a substantial side, size with, without the stock market even participating. So that's yeah, that's a worldwide phenomenon. That's not South Africa specific. So I think there's that, a multitude of things yeah. that play here. That's a natural phenomenon based on the constraints that we've discussed in markets. So is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, we're, we're actually getting sustainable highly developed companies into market at a point where you've got proof of concept you've got everything else where what the growth rates going to be into the future of course is the big question but here you've got substantial businesses that are fighting fit and ready now i don't know if, if you just didn't like the question or the statement sorry he seems to, I, I don't oh, know there you are can... there you are that was you us, yeah, no, no, no. I, I got sound. most of the question, and then I think my I, I think my signal dropped there for a few seconds. I'm sorry about that. Um, okay. You asked whether it's necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all, uh, except to the extent that it does mean that you know stock market investors don't get the 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 opportunity to participate in some of these unicorns at the earlier stage, and therefore experience those wonderful multiples. You know that they sometimes do realize the counter argument, of course is that those same unicorn-type companies come with a huge amount of risk. So not only do you give up the opportunity, but you also avoid lots of those risks. So there's always a counterbalancing factor to bear in mind. Dion, thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. From London, the Chief Investment Officer at Credo Group, Dion Khos this evening on The Money Show. Our signals feature what we are seeing in the world that perhaps you're not noticing, you're not picking up. But if you're seeing signals that we're not picking up, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a perspective on the things that you're noticing that you'd like us to, I don't know, scratch a little bit beneath the surface. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, unrivaled pursuit of great service that guides good business for clients. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Our Africa Business Report is brought to you by SAA, the ones who fly SAA's growing route network, now fly, flying to Sao Paulo, Brazil, your gateway to South America. To Diana Games we go. Diana is the chief executive of the business consultancy Africa at Work. And Diana Games, let's start off with Nigeria this evening. The House of Representatives apparently looking to ban all goods made in Nigeria um, and, and importing uh, imports of all Nigerian goods. What is the the, the aim here? Well, Bruce, this is um, this is not a new thing in Nigeria it's not at a new all. Thing in fact, um, trade bans have been a, a feature of the um, trade uh, policy for for several decades now. The idea is to boost local industry, to develop a manufacturing industry, and and uh, also to save and generate foreign exchange. Um, but the strategy has actually really not been very successful. And what we've seen is manufacturing as a percentage of GDP has actually gone down. It's now um, about 8%. So, so as a blunt instrument, this has not really worked. And yet it keeps coming up in different ways. Um, a lot of people say you know, that, that, that the politicians make money out of it. They're in businesses where smuggling is rife and things like that. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think it's true to say that there has not been a proper outcome um, uh, in, in terms of all the, the bans that have, have been put in place. There's still an, a, banned, a list of banned imports that's been in place since about 2000, um, which is still sitting on the books. 
Um, and then there's another under Bihari, 43 items restricted for access to Forex um, for, for manufacturers. Uh, which was actually just turned around um, uh, by President Tanubu as part of his his policy to free up the economy. So it's it's not been productive. There have been many success stories, quite small, um, you know, in in various um, agriculture like fruit juice and um, and some manufacturing. Uh, sorry, that's not the best example. It's the only one that came to my mind. But uh, you know, manufacturers have been in dire straits for a long time, and and they they their issue is that the government doesn't have a proper strategy. It needs a comprehensive industrial strategy to support manufacturing. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So as a, as an instrument on its own, import bans have not worked. Probably still won't as long as you have you know high taxes, forex shortages. Um, uh, unreliable power, cost of finance, et cetera, et cetera. And this seems to be something that the, that the successive governments have not been prepared to really look into seriously. It's like, we will put the import ban in place and you just get on with it, seems to be the message. Well, and that obviously is not working because they are so, the, operation, the uh, operational environment is so challenging. So, yeah, no shortcuts in this case, but look, it's not being pushed through yet, but nevertheless, it is a formal proposal on the table. Yeah, and formal proposals yeah. show intent, and formal proposals that show intent can end up as legislation, uh, regardless of the consequences. We've been singing the praises on the show of the marvels of the East Africa community, particularly the good things that are going on in Kenya at the moment, and the diplomacy out of Kenya, and the 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 really smart footwork that is happening in Kenya. It's interesting to see that Somalia now has been admitted into that East African community, and I. One wonders um, just how smart a move it is at this point in history for that to happen. Well, I think that's definitely the case. And there's been a lot of uh, people saying it's uh, it's too soon. Having said that, I mean, they have been trying since 2012. They have been applying on a regular basis um, to get into the EAC. Um, and, and I think after the DRC was admitted, um, I think it was last year, they said, look, that's also kind of a, if you like, a dysfunctional country or a challenging country. So if you can accept them, surely we have a better chance, etc. And it seems that the EAC has, has now heard them and thought, well, the only way we're going to actually pull this country up is by admitting it into this into this regional um, body and kind of giving it the cover of these quite solid states, most of them. Um, and because Somalia, I mean, there are concerns that the challenges of having Somalia on board may outweigh the benefits. And of course, security is, is very much top of the list. Kenya particularly has been um, has been hit by the attacks by Al-Shabaab, the, the, the um, militant Islamic group that's very well entrenched in Somalia. Um, and the worry is that, you know, as border restrictions, as part of this EAC thing, the border restrictions are easier or are, are, are reduced. This actually provides like a backdoor for, for Al-Shabaab to have greater kind of traction in, in the region. Um, and, and so that really is a big concern because the current government in Somalia has not been really able to, to get on top of the Al-Shabaab um, the war, if you like, against Al-Shabaab already raging in Somalia. So the fact is they're not standing as, as a sort of guarantor of security um, given this, this move into the EAC. And also Somalia is also very much um, 
sort of a, a very the governance is is kind of weak that there's corruption is huge currently i think the the somalia is right at the bottom of the um transparency international uh, corruption index i think it's number 180 and i think there are only 180 countries so um so that is another concern but i but then uh, you know other people say well uh, it'll never develop if we just leave it out there so so what to what should we do i mean we um, you know, there's acute foods, food insecurity, etc. So the idea is that uh, that this provides a beacon of hope for Somalia, which which and and some kind of support, proper support from the region. Yeah. Um, how that translates, in, whether it includes um, military interventions um, as as part of the EAC kind of troops, or, or whether whether it just that remains with the African Union is yet to be seen. Um, the other thing that the, that the uh, EAC looked at and in, in this uh, pulling them in is, is they have three thousand kilometres of coastline, and, and that's that's uh, uh, viewed as a very positive thing for the region, giving that kind of access to the sea. So I think it is. It's 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 definitely um, time will tell how it affects the the region. But um, you know they've they've they've, they've it's it's a very strong economic um, body, as you said. It has done a lot of good stuff. Yeah, good things. It's, yeah. And it's been small enough to be it's cohesive. You know, it's, it's these big uh, sort of rambling free trade areas and things that that, that sort of lose traction at, at, uh, in parts. This has been quite cohesive, even though it is now getting quite big. Um, in fact, some say, is it getting too big um, to be uh, workable? You know, what made it very successful was the fact that it was quite small and tight. And these were natural trading partners, etc. You know, is it now just getting a little bit too big? Uh, that is also a concern that some have voiced. So it's a very interesting a, story. Be watching a that. victim yeah. of a victim of its own success, potentially. Um, I was chatting to Jonathan Oppenheimer last week and he was telling me how his great-grandfather, probably 100 years ago now, I can't remember the date exactly, but I think it was either 20, 1922 or 1923, was going out and exploring the copper belt in Zambia. And I said to him, I wonder if he could have done that in a social media age in the same way that he did it uh, 100 years ago and, and possibly not. And how, you know, you, you go off into these areas with very little communication for months on end and there's no WhatsApp group for senior management to interfere so the people go there and just set things up and get started and you know 100 years later Zambia is still producing enormous quantities of really good copper how secure is the next 100 years looking from what you can see right now well, you know, Zambia is always, um, <clears throat> you know, that mining industry has certainly been very up and down over the years, as Jonathan himself would would well know. Um, but I think it's 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 what what you're seeing now is that you know Africa has become the kind of centre, if you like, of uh, of the kind of minerals that are needed for the energy transition. So you know, copper is among those and various others. So <clears throat> there is definitely um, increasing demand at this stage for for um, for Zambia's uh, uh, minerals and those coming out of course the, the DRC which um, around um, uh, the eastern DRC forms part of the of that whole block of, of, of minerals so I think the idea the, the, the issue has been the infrastructure to get this to well two things really have been issues one is um, trying to to um, uh, transform it in country rather than just exporting this offshore and the other has been exporting it offshore I mean there's so many kind of barriers um, to to moving goods out of the Central Africa, 
and, and Zambia is one of the more developed areas uh, relatively in that region. And I mean, you're looking at a, a journey of, for example, 2,700 kilometers to Durban. And on top of that, for, you have the security issues. Copper is, is very visible. You see the long flat trucks that don't look very loaded. That's all the copper. And there have been a lot of a lot of issues of security. And then they have other options, you know, going to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, um, Baira in Mozambique and, and Volfers Bay. So what what is, and a lot of this stuff is going to to the Western markets, particularly the US and, and um, parts of Europe. So, you know, the, the, there's been a lot of money, a lot of thought going into how do we get the stuff going west without, um, you know, so to prevent having to go all the way east and then all the way around the Southern Africa and then only heading for US and other markets. So what's been happening is there's, a, there's um, projects driven by um, Europe and America um, the, the European um, Global Gateway Initiative and, and the uh, Biden administration has this thing called a Partnership for Global Infrastructure. And, and that is to, to um, re, uh, re uh, not rebuild, the Benguela Railway. Okay, the Benguela Railway runs from Lobito in Angola all the way yeah. into the... To, um, go, going east into Angola. So the idea is that that was re, uh, refurbished by the Chinese um, uh, in the last decade or so after after it was severely damaged. That, that, that railway line is 100 years old. It probably was there when Jonathan was roaming around, <laughs> around the, um, the copper belt. And so that, that was refurbished. And the idea now is to is to join the dots. I mean, what you get in, in Africa is a lot of infrastructure is there, but it doesn't join up. And uh, the idea is to to um, uh, to have connections from that railway line right into the DRC Lubumbashi kind of area, um, yeah. and also Zambian copper belt. So what you're getting then is you you, um, you you can go directly west without having to go all the way around the continent. And there is another angle on this that funders are looking at, and that is that um, shipping is is very much in this age of COP28, or I think we're in now, and and climate change is is that uh, shipping is a very dirty <coughs> polluter, very much as I think it's the sixth biggest polluter in terms of emissions. So the idea is that this will in turn also uh, reduce emissions hugely. Um, by transforming goods at source and then um, moving them um, in, in the more, most direct route that you can yeah. off the continent. So, so there's quite a lot of different dynamics to that. And, and also now we've got this, of course, Durban port being this very unreliable um, place to, to send goods to get them in and out of the country. So I'm sure that this has um, played into this kind of um, uh, this, these big funding projects. No, look, it's massively exciting. It really is. Thank you very much to Diana Games, Chief Executive for at Africa at Work. It's a business consultancy and she's a regular contributor to our Africa Business Report. When you create obstacles, when you create bottlenecks, when you create problems, there are always smart people looking for solutions and those solutions they will want to be profitable for themselves so don't be shy i mean or shocked i suppose when suddenly it emerges big the money show investment school welcome to the money show this evening also welcome to gary boyson gary is director at rand swiss and we need to know how to spot and protect ourselves from investment scams because investment scams are prolific gary there are some pretty dumb ones that are easily visible but i've just i've made a comment over the last couple of weeks i've just seen this growing tendency of mad emails going into my junk box being quarantined by the company it system but some sort of sneak past the goalie from time to time and you just get this very clear sense that there we, we're under attack all the time by devious means by people who want to help themselves to our money the little bits that we have left 
Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the stats are something like Google blocks uh, 100 million phishing emails per day. Sure. And as you say, that's, <laughs> it, I mean, the numbers are just staggering. It's something like 48% of all, I think all email is spam email as well. <laughs> so, so yes, we are definitely under attack. And, and I suppose, you know, if, we, if we're looking at scams specifically, um, phishing, which is, uh, you know, essentially a cyber, it's one of the most prevalent types of cybercrime um, is is uh, an investment scam that tries to capture your data and get your emails. And, and the problem is, I think, with the rise of the, the likes of ChatGPT and artificial intelligence, the, these scams are becoming smarter and smarter uh, because you can suddenly fire off a couple of uh, a couple of hundred million emails, and they can be tailored to the person. They can sound very much like a, a normal person. Ooh. So I think becoming a, a lot more sophisticated as well. Yeah, dreadful. I mean, I, I keep getting emails from a rewards program of a bank that I'm not a client of telling me I must claim my rewards and all I have to do. And I was like, hold on a second. Um, and so, yes, you, you, there are the, they are incredibly, incredibly devious. So when it comes to some basics here, Gary, um, you know, I, I, I meet a guy at a bride. He says, you know what you need to do? You need to invest in this thing. What is, is there a checklist? Is there a checklist that I can go through that might not guarantee me a, a foolproof investment option, but certainly would alert me to any sort of red uh, red herrings any any concerns that there might be in the investment option well, I don't know if there's an official checklist, but I've put one together for the, the money show listeners tonight. So I've, I've put one with an easy acronym, SAFER. SAFER? Um, SAFER. So, so the first one Did is Did you make that up awareness. yourself, by the way? Sorry. I, I, use, I used ChatGPT to do that. Did you? <laughs> AI is incredibly advanced these days. <laughs> but I just said, but help you, me with that easy yeah. acronym, and there it came. But, but what you're going to do now, because I've done that for talks that I do, and it comes up with the biggest load of the, the <laughs> horse excrement. It really does. Um, but it, what it does do is it provides a framework upon which you can build and add your extraordinary experience. So despite <laughs> admitting the fact that you've been plagiarizing your content. Um, yeah. So what, not, what, not at all. No, I, I no, used no. it just for the acronym. Just all for the, the content acronym. underneath was, was my content. No, okay. so, no, but, but um, yeah, here's the acronym and in all seriousness. SAFER. I quite like it mm. because it provides something to hang our framework on in terms of understanding how to protect ourselves. Yeah. So as I said, the first one, the S in, in SAFE is, is really scam awareness. So we've got to understand one, phishing is one type of scam, but but there's all, ty- all sorts of scams out there. Um, you know, understanding the types of scams that exist uh, help you recognize them, of course. So probably the, the most popular financial scam anyway is, is the Ponzi scheme, um, which we've unfortunately had uh, in headline news uh, fairly recently in South Africa. And essentially, what is a Ponzi scheme? It's, uh, you know, when you rob Peter to pay Paul, you, you, you promise these outsized returns and you essentially use investor capital to pay pay off other people to pay them their returns the the problem of course is that you eventually run out of money um, and then it all comes tumbling down Absolutely. So, so that's yeah. that's the one phishing we've already discussed, and and then I think that the other one is just fake opportunities as well. So, so all of the ways you know that we you would prevent or at least I, you um, protect yourself from these scams is it comes down to authentication. That's and that's the A in in safer, and it, it really comes down to trying to authenticate who's behind it. And and to give you an example, a fake opportunity scam is is you know where there just is no investment product, there's there's no regulation, just a couple of simple checks would have 
would have solved the problem. You, you can check the company's website, for example. You can uh, go onto the FSCA's website, which is fsca.co.za, and you can type in the entity's name that you're dealing with, and if they're regulated, it will come up. And but, you'll be able to click all sorts of different buttons that will show you who the uh, key individuals are within the company, who the representatives are, what products they're authorized for. And, and this is just really the first step to, to sure. trying to understand. How, um, how rigorous is the... Because you you would be a financial sector conduct authority registered company um, as as Rand Swiss, you would have gone through the process. How rigorous is it? I mean, is it simply a case of saying here my here, here I and my fellow directors are? We don't have criminal records. Yes, we've got a physical address, and here are our qualifications. Is it a bit more complicated than that? It is a little bit more complicated than that. It's uh, and and it's ongoing as well. So so absolutely, these these are things that you you will get asked. You have to have obviously an address, and you've got to get, have certain qualifications. And the, the whole system is actually structured almost uh, like an apprentice system. So you earn uh, time in categories, and you know depending on the, the investment product that you're selling, uh, once you've been under supervision of a category for long enough, and you've got practical real world experience, uh, you can then essentially you know become a representative. And finally, after doing a whole lot of different exams you become a key individual but uh, it's not just that you know a, a regulated FSP also has to you know there's rules around marketing for example so when you want to you know sit in front of a client with a brochure explaining an investment product your FSP number has to be on that whenever you're advertising anything within the in the financial services sector you must have your FSP number attached so as a listener if you're chatting to someone over the phone and they've sent you an email with a with a, um, a proposal on an investment if you cannot find you, you know their FSP number somewhere on their email on the brochure on on the marketing material chances are they they they're, they might still be regulated but they're not going to be compliant so so that's the that's the one aspect of it and then of course you've got all the other um, hurdles that are put up in front of you which is you've got to have capital adequacy in your business your balance sheet has got to be strong enough this is all checked regularly you've you've got to do regular submissions to the FSCA around you know the assets that you're managing the type of business that you you're conducting you've got to do CPD points those you know all, all the financial advisors out there will be just shivering thinking of all the CPD <laughs> points that you have to get every year and that continuous professional development is, is is part and parcel of being a financial advisor so yes there are lots and lots of things that you need mm. to do to maintain an active uh, license is there a way i mean yes you can authenticate you can so i mean there's a rigorous check and balance process which gives you a better than even chance i mean a 99 percent chance i would argue um of dealing with somebody with integrity however you cannot regulate integrity um, and in, in integrity is something that only emerges when things, or a lack of integrity, only emerges when things have gone wrong. Up until that point, you assume that the person you're dealing with, because they're so compliant and because they've ticked all the boxes, is an honest and good person. But that's not always an absolute Absolutely. Think. I always have a chuckle because part, part of the, the, the regulatory process is you have to do what we call the Higgs forms, which is honesty, integrity, and good standing. And you kind of tick there, I don't have a criminal record, I'm honest. I, and you, you tick a whole lot of checkboxes and you think, but if I was a dishonest person, I would just <laughs> do them anyway. <laughs> so I would just lie. So, yeah. so absolutely, it, it protects you up until a point. But but the next one, you know, if we're going through the SAFER acronym, um, is flags. So there are certain flags that even if you're operating with a regulated entity, um, they're flags that show that uh, the investment professional that you're working with probably there's something nefarious happening under uh, beneath the, the surface. And yeah, I, I've got a couple of points here. So, so one is the high pressure sales tactics. You know, when it comes to investment, you know, 
sitting there and, and ramming some, something down someone's throat, as soon as you feel under pressure to make an investment and part with money, that your spidey senses should be tingling. Some, something is wrong in that, in that environment, especially if that was an unsolicited offer. If you went to the professional and they happen to be quite pushy with their products, fine. But if this is someone that just phoned you and then is trying to push stuff on you, Avoid, avoid. Don't you just put down the phone. Don't even, don't even engage with them. Honestly, it's, 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 it's not right. Um, and then I suppose the other one is also if, if it's too good to be true. It's, it's kind of the old wisdom that uh, when you hear something that just sounds too good to be true, um, it probably is. I think the biggest net for the too good to be true crowd is the word of mouth. The way you have, and 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 all of us have networks of people that we trust, people people who are doing well, and we go, how are you doing so well? But I've got this guy. Now, you're not going to find him wasting his time with all the blood and nonsense at the FSCA because he's found a way. Um, and look at my statements and look at the returns I've achieved. And then you know that you're down a slippery slope. But my goodness me, there's a little green goblin that sits on your shoulder whispering into your ear, FOMO, FOMO. FOMO. And I think that's you know, the biggest risk most people face because the vast majority of us take our friends and colleagues' advice to heart. And if somebody seems to be winning, we want to win too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, it's very, very valid. So you know, the, the easy framework to, to kind of put any you know, around the bra advice or, or, or that kind of FOMO into is, is to just put it on the simple efficient frontier. So what, what is an efficient frontier? It's literally saying a, a low-risk investment should deliver a low return. A high-risk investment should uh, promise the potential of a higher return. And the way that we think about that is if, if it's a high return um, but low risk, that's a scam. That, that whole region of high return, low return, just assume that it's a scam. It, 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 as much as you want it to be true, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not. And if you miss it, you miss it. It doesn't matter. And then, of course, you get, you know, and, and there are very few, there's maybe a few of those opportunities you might see in your lifetime. And let me tell you, you haven't found it. And then, of course, there's the other, the other side of that curve, which is the, the high risk, low return investments. And there are plenty of those. And those essentially can be scams too. And, and I think the way to engage with that um, is is the E in, in safer? No, okay, well, let's, well, before be, before we get to before we get to the E, let's not rush through because there is something else that comes through from time to time, and that is the issue of complexity. Now, trust me, I'm a financial advisor. I know that you don't understand this, but it's okay because I've checked it out. I've put my own children's money in this thing because I believe this person, this institution, this scheme, this scam, this uh, whatever you might call it, if you were a dodgy advisor. Um, or not an advisor at all, as it turns out many people aren't. That issue of complexity, don't worry your pretty little head, it'll be fine, run, I would think, like the wind. Oh, it's, a, it's, a it's a difficult answer because, yes, run like the wind, but also, you know, there is an, there's, there's such a huge element of trust that comes into uh, the relationship between a financial advisor and a client as well. And and there are just so many clients out there that that, you might actually not understand the the investment, um, and and you know there's there's a lot of these misconceptions that you know I watched a YouTube channel and I heard I mean I remember um, putting putting together a proposal for a client probably six seven months ago and uh, the the requirement was incredibly complex from from the client side it was a local trust that was um, essentially trying to invest offshore but they wanted to they had natural people as beneficiaries and they wanted to claim tax relief on that it was it was a very complex structure that that we had inherited and and in order to 
to achieve the goal of the client. We had to create an asset swap. We had to, um, uh, you know, there was an advice uh, process to that. There was uh, essentially uh, legal work that had to be done around the edges. Um, on top of that, it had to be offshore. We had to kind of create a Guernsey, a Guernsey holding structure. And we put the whole thing together at, at really, it, you know, for the size of the investment, at an incredibly reasonable 1.3%, which, which, I mean, if, if the investment professionals listen, they'll say, how did you do that? That's <laughs> insane what you did for, for, yeah. that, for that volume of work and, and for the amount of providers and, and um, essentially little, I don't know how to explain them, little levers that have to be pulled. And the client went, oh, well, I'm not paying that. I, I've, I watched this YouTube channel and the YouTube channel says that you must never pay more than 1% on your investments. And I was like, of, co- of, of course, you, you shouldn't pay maybe advice of 1%, but you're getting like 12 things here. Like, and then eventually, eventually the, the decision by the client was, oh, no, no, I'll just go directly offshore and, and we'll do it. At a, at, I think we ended up at about one point, at about 0.3, but they missed the tax opportunity. They missed the, the structuring opportunity. Yeah. There was so much that didn't go into it, and it was because the client just didn't understand it. So yeah. I think it is – Complexity is important, but it, the, the trust relationship between your financial advisor, yeah. if you've been working with them for a long time, I, I, I would say absolutely, if, if it's someone you don't know offering you something that is too difficult for you to understand and is overly complex, avoid. No question. That's an avoid signal. If we, it's someone that you've worked with for years that you trust, that ha- you have a solid long-term track record with, there are times when you do need to trust them. We'll get to the ER part of SAFER. This is the acronym that Gary Boyson has created for us this evening in terms of how to make sure that you don't get caught up in a scam. The first is scam awareness, then authenticating um, the investment opportunity, and then the flags, the red flags. We'll get onto the E and the R of SAFER this evening. It will, of course, be part Part of our podcast that will be up immediately after the money show this evening so you can go through and take notes because he's giving us a huge amount of very valuable insight more with gary in a moment the money show investment school gary boyson teaching us spelling and safer investing this evening using the acronym safer we're on to e what's your e in safer so the last two are, are more simple than the ones that we've been through. So, so, so the last one is yeah, engage and educate as well. So I think, you know, it kind of relates to the complexity discussion we've been having. Uh, don't ever be afraid to ask questions. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of you don't understand, you're the client, you really sh- you shouldn't accept that ever. Uh, you should you should. Be, the, your investment professional should be able to explain why uh, they've, they've proposed something and, and exactly how the investment works. If they can't, be careful. <laughs> be very careful. And, and absolutely, just, just try, try your best to understand uh, what you're putting your money into. And, yeah, that's, it's, it's really important. And you can never be too well-informed, frankly, when it comes to it. The issue of regulation. Now, this is the, the, the boring bit. This is the unsexy bit. And it is the most important bit when it comes to investing. It's the bit that is ignored when it comes to people wanting to simply buy Bitcoin because they believe that that's the future. And maybe it is. And maybe they'll be brilliant and they'll be fine. And they never needed the advice in the first place. And I'm skeptical of that. But the idea of regulation and what regulation can and cannot do for you is important to understand. 
Absolutely, and, and most most legitimate. When I say legitimate, most investments are regulated, and, and you used uh, Bitcoin as an example. So, uh, crypto applications are going in. The, the crypto licensing categories from the FSCA are now out. Um, applications have to, have to actually be in in the next two days, um, and then you will be able to have crypto added to the license, and, and you will be able to work with a licensed uh, crypto professional, um, where there is at least some sort of oversight uh, of the of the investment uh, that is being offered, and there is some sort of checks and balances that are in place uh, in the way that uh, the investment professional is engaging with the public. So uh, even unregulated investments, and, and, and I think crypto was was one of the most interesting because it just took the world by storm, um, then almost disappeared, and then the regulation kind of is just catching up now. But most most investment products are regulated, and it doesn't have to be an FSCA regulation that we're talking about. Things as, as simple as a share, uh, if you think about that, it, it is to an extent regulated. Just the fact that it's listed, it has to go through all sorts of uh, requirements before it can list on an exchange. And those listing requirements, while the companies will, you know, will grumble and say, oh, it's so much red tape, it's so, it's so difficult for us to operate in a listed space, it is an incredibly important protection for investors. So you just compare a, a listed security, so a listed share, so a, a listed share in a, a comp- in a public company versus um, trying to buy a share in a private company. And you think of the amount of transparency that a listed company has to have. And it's incredible. Incredible, um, you know. Even down to you know, are you investing in a company or just some you know weirdly shaped investment that that has you know a, maybe a, a prospectus, but but you don't actually even know where the money's going. It's going into some bank account in Mauritius. You don't even know what the entity structure is. Even an entity, a company, is 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 regulated. So I think when when it comes down to and it's it's surprising how few people check check you know the the, the structure of the investment. Uh, it comes down to to understand again. It comes down to understanding what you're invested in and how that is regulated. Is it uh, you know a some sort of trust sitting in Guernsey. Who is who are the trustees? What is the structure? Ask those questions. Find out how it's regulated. And if it isn't, avoid it. Gary, thank you very, very much indeed. An enormously detailed insight this evening on our investment school. How to spot and protect yourself from investment scams. There is no foolproof method there, Gary. I mean, unfortunately, even with all of the checks and balances in the world, what you're doing is minimizing risk rather than fireproofing your investments. And, you know... One doesn't want to take away from the little guys, but sometimes, you know, the the, the institutions that have been around for a while um, are are there because they've they've not robbed their customers um, and they've and they've treated them fairly well. And, you know, you've got to be careful going for for no name brands, for people you've never heard of and simply be you know, quadruple check word of mouth, I would think, more importantly than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and I suppose it's something that we haven't discussed today, but it, it, it really is history and track record as well. You know, the longer an institution has been around, you know, the, the big institutions can be less nimble. They can offer potentially less uh, less return because they, they, you know, are potentially a little bit more stagnant. But, you know, you've always got a question. If, you, if you're looking at a fact sheet, for example, and, and you, you, you ask, I mean, I've sat in meetings like this where, where you say, oh, this looks like really good performance. Uh, when did it start? Oh, no. Six months ago, ah. but you've got a you've got a worm that goes back ten years. Oh yes, that's theoretical. <laughs> like no, no, no. What's a worm? <laughs> is, is that a computer um, program that says if we've done this ten years ago, this is how we would have done? I, I think I think of it like the cricket worm. Uh, you know, the the performance chart. If you want to put it that way, I call it the worm. But okay. uh, but yeah, if if there's no real performance, if if that is not real measured performance, uh, absolutely. I mean, that's when that's when the meeting ends uh, for me anyway. Gary Boyson, he is a.